Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. So you and I, um, we'll talk about a little of this about this like later on in our conversation, but we both did or slash are doing the same eating disorder coach training. Yeah. Is yeah. that how you, I don't remember. Is that how you found me? How did you find me? Cause you reached out to me, right? About yeah. like a private, like starting like a coaching practice, right? Yep. Totally. I found you actually, you were on the resource section of Christy Amadio's. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. She was on the first season of the podcast. Cool. Yeah. And then so we the ended podcast. up finding out that we were doing the same. You already finished it. It's Carolyn yeah. Costin's eating disorder coach training and yeah. I'm almost done with it. Not quite. Um, yeah. Cool. So again, thank you for being on here. I think your story was great and I think it's going to help a lot of people. And there's a lot of really um, like great things for us to talk about. So I kind of want to dive right in. And the first thing that I want to talk about is it's interesting for me as like the host when I listen to people tell their stories because it's I'm able to just see these like running threads that sometimes when the person's telling their story, they're not even aware of just because mm -hmm. it's like you're just telling your story. Um, and one thing that came up a lot for you in your, in your story was how deeply it seemed like your eating disorder tied in with your identity. And you use the words external validation. You might not really have used identity. Um, but one thing that really stood out for me was even as young as like, 12 or 13, you know, when things are starting to shift in your life, when you moved, when your parents went away, when you felt like your social life was changing, like you said, like who I was, was falling apart. And it just sounds to me like whether it was like a popular girl in school or whether it was someone with an eating disorder or a runner or, um, even like in your recovery, wanting to recover so that you fit in, it just always seems to me like there was this bigger question that you were searching for of like, who, like, who am I and where do I fit? And, um, and so I'd love for you to expand a little bit more about, you know, that journey for you of this, like how you went from really needing this external validation to kind of being just happy with who you are at your heart. And I know that's like a very long thing, but I guess just briefly, if you can touch a little bit about that um, and then maybe moving into just, how spirituality played a role in that because I hear that they're very linked. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you're right. I I didn't really think of it as an identity thing, but it's neat that you picked that out. But the yeah, the external validation for me, thinking about it in those terms, it still feels maybe this is an identity thing, but I think for me it still feels like um all of those things, like like searching for different identities, I feel like they were all ways for me to prove to myself that I was good enough. I think it was never like any one of those things that I needed as an identity, but I almost needed like all of these different things to somehow like soothe this underlying fear I had that like I just might not be good enough or there might be something like wrong with me. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was the identity crisis is that just on a really deep level, who I was wasn't good enough. Because I did, I felt like I had this emptiness inside me. And as long as I had external proof 
like I really cared about other people's opinions and like how they viewed me. So if other people viewed me well, it must mean there wasn't something wrong with me. Does that, does that resonate with like the same thing as like identity? Cause that's, I think for me that it was, it was like identity on a very deep level and it wasn't, it was never like one of those things was good enough. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm a good athlete. So I don't need to be good in school or I'm nerdy. So I don't need to be good at sports. It was like, I needed every source of validation. Totally. That that makes sense to me. And like, I I, I do think it's like the bigger, and I I think that maybe this is true for a lot of people. It just gets played out in a different way, but like Mm -hmm. the bigger question of like, like big picture identity or like identity at your core of like who, like who actually am I? Right. Exactly. I remember feeling that. Like I remember just feeling like I used to think that like there's just, I just must've been like an alien in my past life because I just didn't feel like I fit in on the most basic level. I was like, I don't understand people. They don't understand me. Yeah. Um, But it really was like, I feel like I felt, I don't know that I was like aware of it when I was really struggling, but I think empty is like a really good term of just like this emptiness of like, who am I? And it reminds me actually, I remember, um, like that was something that I kind of wrestled with even post eating disorder of just who Mm -hmm. am I? And I remember my main yoga teacher saying to me, you know, I said just like, I'm so, I just feel so empty. And she was just saying like, the best thing about feeling empty is that you can fill yourself up with anything. Yeah. No, that's, I love that. Yeah. And so I would love to talk about then um, the idea of how spirituality maybe helped you fill that emptiness or that void. Um, Because it sounds like that played a big part in your recovery, or at least getting you to feel to this place of feeling like fully recovered was this the spirituality side of you. You read spiritual books, you went to India, you meditated. Like, How did all of that kind of help you in your in your recovery process yeah totally well it's funny because for me it it actually started when I was really young these spiritual principles because my parents did this heart-centered meditation from before I was born and um I mean, they didn't like talk directly to us about it, but we had books about it and they had group meditations on Sundays that we would like, you know, go outside and play while they meditated. So it was very much a part of my life, even growing up, even though I couldn't really fully understand it. But I always had the sense of like, there was something in my heart, like some connection to something bigger. And even in the depths of some of my like darkest times in the hospital, sometimes I would have like, this experience where I felt connected with my heart and like connected to something bigger than the eating disorder and than myself. And so for me, I think recovery just became about finding that more and more. So it wasn't just these little blips of insight and experiences, but um, how do I live from that place? And I mean, not, not realistic to like always have these like insights where like you feel disconnected from your life and connected to something bigger, but um, just what, what is that inside of me that is so um, not not congruent with then how hard I am on myself and other parts of my life and how hard I am on myself with the eating disorder. So, but then during, like apart from those few insights, I did, I just felt really um, like disconnected from myself apart from those you know, bursts of, of connection. Um, 
when I was around other people, especially, um, I felt completely empty inside and like I was just living to get approval from them. So that fed into the eating disorder a lot because it was so painful feeling that emptiness and then also possibly being rejected by people that somehow the eating disorder gave me this like false sense of being good enough, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, it could be identity, but for me, I think it was really that feeling of being good enough. Mm -hmm. um, so then when I was in India and started meditating for the first time, the very first meditation I had, and I want to preface this because meditation is not always going to be these aha moments or these breakthrough moments. And I have had so many very boring meditations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I still think it's a beautiful practice. But for me, start and if you start out and have zero experience, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or it's not, you know, maybe not for you. But for me, I had this experience of where I felt like my chest or like my heart, but just like something in my chest, like softened and opened up. And I, it felt like my heart had been like closed off and like so enshrouded in fear for so long. Um, and I just felt like it kind of something in me kind of came alive. That was, yeah, where I didn't feel empty anymore. I, it was almost like this inner compass. I think I often felt throughout the eating disorder and with friends, it's like I didn't have my own rudder, like on a boat. And I was relying on like external validation and external circumstances to make me feel like I was somewhat on track kind of, but I didn't. So I was very hard for me to set boundaries with people, very hard to be authentic with people if it didn't mean getting approval because I just didn't feel like I had anything inside me guiding me and who I was and how I wanted to be and what made me good enough and worthy enough to say this is who I am and you might not like it. Like I just, I didn't have that inside me somehow. And so, yeah, it was through meditating that I, and the spiritual practice and feeling like, I guess my heart kind of came alive a bit when I started meditating. Um, I had this internal sense of like being connected to like, or having something inside me that was more than like, my self-objectifications and how other people might see me. And it also ties in with like my intuition. I started developing this way of like tuning into my heart. And then I would know uh, what boundaries I needed to set or how to act around others. That was from a place deeper than just searching for their approval. And yeah, so it, it's kind of just been about cultivating that deeper sense of who I am um, through meditating, through reading so many different books, like from different, like some Buddhism, some like so many different things, um, but they all kind of speak to that, like kind of inner unconditional nature. And for me, not just like understanding that conceptually, but actually like feeling it, like when I'm in social situations, when I'm on an awkward date, when I'm like in those moments where in the past, like I just, I would feel so bad about myself. I'm like, oh God, what's wrong with me? I can connect with that like sense of who I am and of like being good enough and having the ability to love myself and others regardless of like, mm -hmm. if I just said something really stupid. Or, so yeah, does that, I think it, it's not like it's the identity of like, I am a spiritual person. That's my new identity, but it's really just an internal sense of feeling like full, I guess, or feeling good enough about just being a human being and everyone else is totally human beings. Yeah. So I don't, so when things go wrong on the outside, 
it almost feels like I had this image came, that came to me when I was younger, but I felt like I was an empty eggshell <laughs> and like oh, my external circumstances were like the eggshell that held me together, but any like crack in it, I would just crumble because um, there was nothing like no sense of who I was apart mm -hmm. from that. And I would just fall apart. And that's really how it felt. Like sometimes I just felt like who I was would fall apart. But yeah, with like the internal, like focusing on my heart or focusing on just who I am as I guess a spiritual being. Yeah. Um, now it feels like I have like something inside of that eggshell. <laughs> so mm -hmm. when it cracks, it's like, I don't know. It just, yeah, it doesn't, I don't feel empty. There's something kind of intangible inside me or some relationship to something deeper um, that can stay whole even when something on the outside might fall, fall apart. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I love that because I think it's, it, it's like you said, there's one thing to kind of understand it conceptually, but then there's yeah. another thing to like actually like really understand it right like be yeah and feel it even when you're on an awkward date or like yeah you know you're not feeling like your best just to be able totally. to be like okay you know I think some a lot of treatment programs like a lot of the work that they have people do is just like the shifting your identity from like just you and your body to like what is actually separate from that like what yeah. is your soul and what is your soul connected and yeah you know um Carolyn Costin says that like she does that um that exercise where it's like if you died yeah. like what is still in the room but what's gone and it's like what's still in the room might be the body like the physical part of who you are but like right. everything that's left is actually the soul like your laugh and your smile and like your breath and um and so I think when I think of the bigger yeah. question of like who am I it like that actually isn't identity right like that just like so raw and authentically like at yeah. my core like who am I yeah totally. not like I'm a daughter and I'm a coach and I'm a it's like exactly. no like I'm a being I'm a soul yeah. I'm a heart I'm um and I think it that takes practice but I also think it's really beautiful when when you're able to get there and so I hear that yeah. um there's been a few different things to help you get there and so um, could you mention, I know on your website and we'll link to this, you've got like a whole list of all of the books that like helped you, but off the top of your head, are there a few that you can think of that really helped you, um, particularly in terms of like spirituality, since that's what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. What one I really, well, the first one that jumps out at me and it's not even a spiritual book. It was wrote, written by like a neurosurgeon or something, but it's called, um, the heart's code. And it's written from like a medical perspective. It's a doctor, but he did all these heart transplants. And it talks about how much of who we are is tied up in the heart, not just the head. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, something about that book just really like resonated with me. And I think it helped me get out of my head a little bit. So I love that book. And it's also not a fully spiritual book. So if people are new to that type of reading, um, that book really like resonated with me. Um, there was a book dying to be me and it's a beautiful book it talks about a lot of spiritual principles and it, it can be a bit out there for some people because it's about this woman's um basically experience of dying and like having this near-death experience but she was basically out of her body and coming back and just she had these really beautiful realizations of like how she had been living her life before and how she wanted to live her life now that book was really beautiful um so those ones were huge a lot of Tara Brack's book, 
yeah, true refuge. Um, and then I think a lot of it, like these were all later on um, in my recovery, but I think a lot of it was just the ones from the meditation practice that my parents um, had done. So they read me different books from their, their meditation practice. So I think that was like, those are the first seeds mm. for me. And then these books came in after and just kind of reinforced a lot of what I'd already grown up with. Um, another book I really love, not spiritual again, but just really beautiful. So I'll mention it is nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. I do that with all of my clients. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. I see it in there. I love that book because yeah. That, yeah, it's not just, so spiritual, but that one was really influential. So I just think it's so like, seriously, almost every one of my clients I've done nonviolent communication with just yeah. to be able to start to learn to like address your feelings and ask for what you need and totally hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. And honor like your needs and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I love that book. Um, Heart Math is something that helped me a lot. Have you heard no. of it? Mm-mm. Okay, and it's so interesting. I actually asked um, Carolyn Costin about it, and she said she actually used it in some of her treatment programs, really? which is neat because I thought it was kind of out there, but um, it's this organization that's from California, and they do scientific research on the heart-brain connection, but they have a lot of really neat um, – like practices you can do throughout your day to like soothe your mind by connecting with the heart, but in a very like uh, non out there way, like they're not even a spiritual organization. But for me, it ties in with a sense of spirituality because I just, the heart means so much to me and who I am as a person and my soul and stuff. But um, heart math is, so I did some of their webinars and on my books page, um, I have one of their audiobooks listed. Um, so that one was really, really powerful for me. I used some of their like little practices to get me through actually a lot of really triggering and difficult situations during recovery. So mm. that one was really good. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I definitely want to look that up. Yeah, they're really neat. Yeah, they're a really neat organization. Cool. Um, I mean, yeah, like, there are more. I'm sure that I'm missing some, but I, I, you, we could link to the. Yeah, I'll definitely link to your webpage just in general, but specifically to that list of books so that, because I get that question a lot. Like, so many people are just like, they're so eager to just read and find something. And so the more resources out there, the better, because who knows what's going to be the book that grabs you or the few books that really like work for you because. You know, we all just need a little bit of support in some way. Um, No, books were such a huge part of my recovery. They just either reinforced what I already wanted to believe in or gave me new. And I remember just going to the bookstore and just kind of flipping through books and just seeing if I felt like I resonated with a book or not. Like I'd know within a first few paragraphs and then, yeah, so people could just find ones they resonate with. And I love this conversation because, you know, like you and I were talking about, I... I have a a few people in my life that have gone through AA and and one of them in particular talks about how in her meetings, they talk about like an addiction being a spiritual malady and just like this, like at the core, it's just like there's something off or like disoriented or in chaos when it comes to your connection to your spirituality. And so And I've, I've seen that be true. And I'm not saying that's always 100% true. Like I, but but I, I have seen that like with my friend and with me and with you maybe and with my mm-hmm. father and just like so many people who um, maybe have gotten their symptoms under control but are still just feeling so lost that yeah. the spiritual side of it has really been the thing to help get them to this 
other place in recovery, like this higher level of it where there is this bigger connection of who, who am I and like being more comfortable with who they are, no matter what the circumstances. Um, And, and so I think just like for people that are listening, if you don't have that connection, that's okay, but it's good thing to just start to get curious about it and like maybe read some of these books and just see what's out there. Um, because if there is this, like, if you're just feeling like there's this void and like nothing's feeling it, that might be the thing. And like you and I were talking about, there's a difference. Like you can be spiritual and not religious, which makes me laugh. Cause like anytime I've ever been on a dating app, like that's an option under religion. It's like spiritual, but not religious, but like, oh, awesome. like you can be like, like I would consider myself relatively atheist, but I also consider myself incredibly spiritual or Definitely, you yeah. can be like my father who's like very spiritual but also very christian yeah um, and yeah. so you know if religion turns you off that doesn't mean this like side of you that could access some sort of connection totally also needs to be turned off no totally yeah no i've never i've never been to church so yeah it was never it wasn't religious for me but then i do have friends who are christian who are very spiritual so yeah no it's very i think it's a very personal thing it's just what makes you feel I don't know why are you like just connected to mm-hmm. something inside you and bigger than you and almost like a yeah where does love come from it kind of gets at that or yeah yeah it's so big mm-hmm. so one thing that you said or kind of as you as you told your story it's like this mm-hmm. spirituality or this um yearning for it or this desire for it really kind of had you decide to go to India kind of on, I mean, I heard that you had been there when you were like eight, but like there was this other part of you when you got older that was like, I need to go back there. And so can you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you, just either the draw to go back there or a little bit more about your time there? I know you spent some time in an ashram, but um, can you tell me more about your time in India? Yeah. Well, it's actually so funny how the whole ashram thing came about because I decided to go to India right after I graduated university and didn't know what I wanted to do next. But I was still thinking like career wise. So I actually decided to go there because I wanted to volunteer and I wasn't even planning on starting meditation or going to the ashram. And my mom had suggested that meditation and her spiritual practice might be good for me, but they never pushed it on me. Um, And so when I told her that I wanted to go to India, she was like, Oh, well, are you, do you want to go to one of the ashrams? Like, do you want to go? And I'm like, nope, nope, that's your thing. I, I don't think it's right for me. Um, I don't know. I just, I just don't want to do that right now, but I want to go and volunteer. And I think it'd just be really good for me to go travel. So I spent quite a bit of money um, setting up these two months of volunteering um, in like little clinics in India because I had the science degree and I was considering medical school or nutrition, nutrition or something. Um, so I thought it'd be a really good experience and just good for me. Yeah, I wanted that confidence that my friend had found when she went traveling. So I had no intention actually of it being like a spiritual thing, even though I, you know, I'd been reading spiritual books and stuff, but for some reason I didn't think I felt ready for my parents' meditation practice. Um, they meditate quite a bit and it felt too much to me. Um, and so, yeah, so, but it, uh, about a month after getting there and volunteering, um, it actually wasn't feeling how I wanted it to feel. I still felt quite lost. I hadn't had any of those aha moments I'd been hoping to have. I was really homesick. I was in tears a lot on the phone with my mom. I was very disappointed (laughs) in how it was going actually for the first month or so. Um, 
And I kept looking for these aha moments. Like I kept looking for like my soul or something to wake up. I remember this like really cute uh, little, um, oh, very poor little boy coming up to me and hugging me with these huge eyes and just staring at me. And I remember thinking, this is when I'm supposed to wake up. This is my aha moment. <laughs> like something in me isn't supposed to come alive. And it didn't. <laughs> and I was just felt like, oh, like, what am I missing? Like, why? What do I need? Or I don't know. And then I ended up getting really sick um, and actually ending up in an Indian hospital for a week. And the whole thing is a blur because I had a raging fever and I was on IV antibiotics. and It was really bad. Um, my mom actually didn't know if I was going to make it. She was terrified. So she ended up actually deciding to, well, we kind of decided together that I was going to change my plans, not continue volunteering, cancel all my um, backpacking plans that I'd made because I just felt so weak. Like I'd been sick for quite a while. It was a week in the hospital, but probably two weeks with barely eating. I don't know. No one really knew. No one pushed food on me and I just was nauseous all the time. So I was very weak when I got out of um, the hospital. And so that was when my mom was like, okay, I'll fly out and meet you and you can come home with me. Um, but if I'm going to fly all the way to India, I want to go to the ashram and you can only stay at the ashram if you're, if you meditate, like if you do the practice, that's, you know, that's why people go to the ashram. So I remember telling her like, Ugh, I don't know. I didn't really, I don't know if I'm ready to start meditating. Um, I'll try it, but please don't pressure me to continue it if it doesn't feel right. And so she agreed. And so I flew down to the ashram to meet her and yeah, so it was, it was so funny. I really do feel like something might have like kind of stepped in. That's how I've always looked at it because it really was what I needed. But I would have done that whole trip without going to the ashram, I think, if I hadn't gotten sick and just everything just worked out that way. Um, and then the first time I sat down and did like group meditation with people, um, yeah, I just felt like I was home. I don't know. I just felt like it was exactly what I needed. And I was just felt overwhelmingly grateful that somehow life had led me there. I mean, not everyone might, you know, see it that way or have those beliefs, but yeah, to me, it really felt like it was like divine intervention <laughs> and it did give me the, what I was hoping to find in India. Um, but then it wasn't an overnight fix. I had to come home and it wasn't like things were better automatically, but right. yeah. So it was a funny experience. Can you talk a little bit? So you've been talking about, first of all, if you can just explain, I think a lot of people listening aren't going to know what an ashram is. Mm. Um, can you just explain a little bit about what like an ashram is so that they know? Um, and then also, you know, you went there to volunteer and it wasn't exactly what you wanted, but then you did go to the ashram and you started to have this experience. And, and something that you've been talking a lot about is this heart-centered meditation. So maybe could you explain a little bit about what an ashram is? And then also, um, can you tell them a little bit more about what a heart-centered meditation is? Because there's a lot of kinds of meditation, which I don't think everybody's aware of. Um, yeah. And, and not every kind of meditation works for every, my meditation teacher says that meditation is like medication and you don't do a med, you don't take mm. a medication that's not helping you. Yes. So it's like having to find the meditation that actually works for you. And so I, like that. Um, I would love it if you talked about this one a little bit more in depth so that if someone wants to try meditation, but they haven't figured it out or they've tried it and it hasn't worked, maybe this kind works better. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, an ashram, I don't even know what the actual definition of one is. To me, it's just like um, a space, like a, you know, there are usually residences on it where you can sleep there and there's some sort of space to, I think, meditate like together. So like, um, and 
yeah, for the meditation practice that I do, they have quite a few ashrams in different parts of the world and they're owned by the organization, which is like a registered nonprofit. So they can own, they own properties. Um, and then it's where you can go and stay there. You stay in either dorms or like kind of small rooms and then there's a meditation hall and there's a dining hall. And it's just a, just kind of a, I guess it's a space where you go to just focus on your spiritual practice. So where you're, you leave home and, and you go and just kind of immerse yourself in it because you can stay there and everything is, is there. Yeah. So that's what it was. And I think normally people stay about two weeks is normal. And then, yeah, there's like a meditation, like a one hour meditation in the morning, midday evenings, um, just kind of quiet times throughout the day. Yeah. I, I think they really differ depending on the organ, like the spiritual organization. Yeah. I think they associated they, I think with. They do too. But I mean, yeah. I think they're all like relatively similar in like what you're yeah. saying that you can stay there. Yeah. Um, you eat there. You probably, it's like very from, from the only one that I've ever been to, which I think is in upstate New York. It's like, mm-hmm. it's very simple. Yes. Um, right. But it is yes, just a space simple, to like yeah. be quiet, meditate in groups. And I always like, I, I like meditating. I have a hard time meditating by myself, but for me, when I'm in a group, yeah. it's so much easier to meditate. And so it, yes. it's just a, a place for you to be able to live and meditate. And if it's like, a, if you need to just get away and just get yeah. quiet for a little bit, it's just a great place to be able to do that. Totally. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, no, I think that's a good way of explaining it because I think there are, there are probably so many different kinds, but I think that's what they would all have in common. Um, yeah, the one that my parents do and that I've done, it's the only one I've, I've tried, but I know um, other people have done different ones that resonate with them. Um, this one is called Sahaj Marg or Heartfulness is like the more like recent American way of referring to it, but the old one is Sanskrit and it means natural path, um, Sahajmarg or heartfulness meditation. Um, and it's basically, yeah, it's not focused on postures. So you don't have, you just sit in any way that's comfortable to you, just being comfortable and not distracted by your discomfort is like the most important thing in terms of the posture. And then just gently closing your eyes. And it's not about trying to empty your mind or, there's no mantra. There's nothing. Um, yeah, not trying to not have any thoughts, but it's about putting your focus on like the area where your heart is and just kind of gently having this like supposition, I guess, or very like light um, idea that like your heart is the source of divine light. And you just kind of gently have that idea, but it's not like a mantra. You don't have to keep repeating it to yourself. And then you just kind of, kind of, I guess, like settle your attention on your heart and just kind of see if you can feel into that. And, um, and you just kind of treat any thoughts like you expect that your brain is going to keep going and keep having thoughts, but you just bring it back to focusing on your heart when you notice it straying, or you can think of your thoughts as like, kind of unwanted guests and they might come in, but you don't have to like attend to them or run away with the thoughts. But if you have them, then you just notice it and just gently kind of try to bring your mind back to your heart. And yeah, the idea behind it is that um, kind of the heart tied in with like yoga and it's a form of like Raja yoga, like mind and um, meditation is to kind of focus your attention on like the subtlest thing that 
in this meditation they believe is, I'm, hopefully I'm doing this justice, there's probably better explanations on their website, but um, that just this idea of like divine light in your heart is a very subtle thing to put your focus on. And so by kind of meditating, I guess the idea is that whatever you meditate on, you kind of begin to embody or your focus goes there. So in a way, meditation is anything we're like focused on. So it could be so many things in our life that we're ruminating on. So why not like try to spend time putting your focus on something very subtle and then that can, you can kind of become more of that. So it's just kind of about becoming more loving, becoming kind of lighter, connecting with something like deeper inside of you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Does, yeah. That, does that make sense? Totally. I think that sounds yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, like you said, I think a lot of meditation is just what you're choosing to focus your attention on. And it's just a matter yeah. of like, when I teach meditation, it's about finding that thing that makes it really easy for you to focus your attention. Mm -hmm. You know, like especially yeah. in the beginning. So if some people like one thing my meditation teacher says is just like most people meditate. They just don't know that they're meditating because yeah. like, if you're a painter and you can just get lost and paint for hours, like right. that's a form of meditation, you know? Yeah. And so what I love is just like you found the, the, the seed or like the thing that brings you back that works for you, which is just like focusing on the right. subtle light in your heart. Right. And, and for other people it might be something different, but I think so yeah. many people are always taught that you have to clear your mind and focus on your breath, which does work for people. Yeah, that is one form. Yeah. You know, it does work for people, but I feel like that's the one that's always taught, especially in Western yeah. societies. Yeah, that's true. So it's just good to know that there's other kinds too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No. One that I, I yeah. one that I usually do is called a bhavana meditation. And bhavana means like essence or feeling. Oh, so it's like a I feeling. Haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's like yeah. a feeling meditation. And so basically, you're supposed to focus on a feeling that you desire or like mm. that, you oh. want, that you want to be filled with, right? So like you're, if you want to, um, if you want to, the feeling of belonging or connection mm. or love, like that's what your focus is. Mm. And then you use memory to invoke that. So like, oh, wow. If you want, to be filled with love, like think of a time where you felt love. And then like, that's kind of the seed is like, you actually, okay. you actually think about that memory. So you can start to feel that feeling again. And then your focus is on that feeling. And then when you lose that feeling, you think about the memory again, you get that feeling back and then you focus on the feeling. And that's, that's, that's one that I personally love. But again, cool. there's just like, there's so many different kinds of meditation. I know. So yeah. I like, I, it's a conversation that I like to have because I like, I get curious about which ones work for people. Yeah. And I, I like being able to introduce that to other people because again, I think if you're not in the yoga meditation world, most people's knowledge of meditation is sit still, upright, close your eyes, focus on your breath and don't, and don't think. Yeah, totally. Right. No, and I it's know. like, again, for some people that works, but for a lot of people it doesn't, especially in the beginning. Um, so it's just a matter of like figuring out what does. And so I know, I, I think that sounds like a beautiful meditation. Yeah, it is. I guess I'll just preface it too, that the med the whole system goes a bit deeper into like their theories of mm -hmm. like the soul and reincarnation and what they call like samskaras, which you might even know about from yoga. Yeah, I do. You mm -hmm. might use the term samskaras. Okay. Yep. And like a different practice you do in the evening called cleaning. And I know some people that might be a little bit out there for some people because it, it kind of stretches some people's belief systems about 
you know, the soul and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. even if people just want to do the simple attention on the heart, but if they do go to the website, they might find there are like some aspects to it that are a bit more out there, but right. and we'll, we'll link to the website in the episode. Yeah. Notes. And like what I personally feel with most spiritual practices is like, take what works for you and just leave the rest for totally. right now. Yeah. And, and it is like, about, yeah. get curious and you want more than great. There's a vast wealth of knowledge more, I'm sure. Totally. Right? Yeah. That's totally the approach with this one. Like just dip your toe in, like just do what feels right for you. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk a little bit about body image. So mm-hmm. body image, I feel like is such, it's just like so it's so hard to talk about because and personally too, just like for so many people in recovery, it's like what you always hear, it's the last thing to go, which right. my personal experience is, is true, Yeah, but it, it, no one really knows how to approach it. And I think because it's just like, I mean, it's hard. It's yeah. hard to go from this place of just like hating your body yeah. And really trying certain things that you think are going to help control your body. Yeah. To then living a life in a body that maybe is not the size that you're used to or comfortable yeah. in and yeah. needing to do what you need to do regardless. Right. And yeah. clothing sizes change. Like there's just changing and societies yeah. stand. I mean, there's just, I do think it's such a challenging thing to go through and it's also a challenging yeah. conversation to have. And, and because of that, I like the people that I interview just to touch on it, especially if it comes up in their story and like yeah. what worked for you. And now totally prefacing it with like what worked for you might not be what works for everything, everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be what works for everyone else, but it might be what works for somebody, you know? Yeah. And so one thing that also seemed to be like a running thread in your story was anxiety and panic, especially, especially mm-hmm. like younger. But then mm-hmm. one thing that stood out for me is you talked about that, one way that you helped work on your own body image was to treat it as if it was a phobia. And so I'd love it if you can expand on that a little bit more. What does that mean? And, and, and in what ways or what tools did you use to kind of help you with your body image by treating it as if it was a phobia like any other right. phobia? Right. Yeah. No, that, that did really help me. And I don't remember where I got the idea from, but um, everything about our bodies and the way we perceive them is just very ingrained in our minds. Like we've just gotten, they, for me, it was so tied up with what it represented. It wasn't even about my actual size, but it was my relative size. So no matter where I started from, any feeling of gaining weight represented um, loosening my discipline, loosening my willpower, being lazy, those words that like, really represented like the eating disorder for me so it wasn't even actually that's why it can work with anyone's body because any relative weight gain just was associated with all of this um, sense of failure and it did feel like a phobia because it felt like everything that I had used to soothe myself and feel in control and feel better about myself like discipline willpower um, with this like glaring evidence um, with my gaining body was that I was failing on those things and what do I do to feel good about myself without that um and I think why maybe why people say body image is the last thing to go is it takes a long time to find like how do I feel good about myself without those things that the 
smaller body represents. And so I think for me, I had to gain weight before I had that, you know, the spirituality or whatever it was, um, all those parts that made me feel good about myself um, without this external validation. I, I couldn't, I wasn't there yet, but I, I couldn't wait for those to be there before I still had to gain weight. Um, so what helped me, and I think I probably got this from different spirituality books or books that talked about, you know, the brain being able to change and stuff is I just realized that this was something that my brain had kind of made up. Like this wasn't real, this interpretation of what weight gain meant. And so if I'd learned to associate weight gain this way and in this scary way that eventually I could unlearn it. But in the meantime, I just had to accept that gaining weight freaked my brain out. Like it really freaked my mind out. It was associated with so much negativity, so much personal failure, uh, so much discomfort tied in with all that. And I still had to gain weight anyways. Um, so treating it like a phobia for me was like telling my, just validating how scary it was. So just letting myself cry, letting myself feel miserable for a while and like just validating like, of course, this is uncomfortable. You've associated weight gain with so many negative things for so long, but like a phobia, just um, with exposure, your brain can make new associations and can calm down and it's not always going to be this scary. And um, I just wrote about this in a blog post, but one of the things I am um, that I would remind myself is like to think about how something new and foreign to your brain feels so uncomfortable at first. Like when you chip a tooth or lose a tooth, it's like all you can focus on and your brain is like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> um, and then you get used to it. Your brain acclimatizes. Um, so I just, it was comforting for me to just tell myself that um, even though the discomfort didn't always go away in the moment, it validated for me that it would and that um, the discomfort was normal and it would go away and I was not always going to feel this terrible in my body because I think that's a fear of a lot of people in recovery it's like oh god if I feel this bad gaining this much weight how am I going to feel at my goal weight right or something like that so for me I just had to tell myself like it's only going to get easier like my brain just needs time to kind of form new associations and I would try to reframe it like because I knew I was associating the weight gain with so many negatives. So I tried to reframe it as actually, it wasn't lack of discipline or lack of willpower. Look how hard it was for me. It was actually really brave. It was really courageous, especially in our culture where gaining body fat is extremely like difficult with what everything we're told. So I tried to reframe it for myself. So just, yeah, I think seeing it as a phobia kind of helped me to know that it would get easier with time, know that it was normal that I was feeling that way. And that wasn't bad, but knowing it was going to take some work to kind of like reframe how I viewed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great approach to it because I think whether it's body image or honestly just also just the eating symptoms, whether it's yep. restricting or binging or purging, it's just there is this, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think eating disorders gets discussed sometimes with anxiety or phobia or OCD. It's just like yeah. there is like, um, that's an element of it. Like there's a fear of food or a fear of your relationship to the food or your your behavior with the food. And yep. it's making me think of like, um, like someone that is afraid to, like I was in treatment with someone actually who had a phobia of riding the subway, mm -hmm. which was really hard because she lived in New York City. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, her exposure therapy, she used to talk about it and it would be mm-hmm. like, um, it would be like at first just standing at the top of the stairs before you go down into the subway and just hearing the yeah. subway. And yeah. then it would be like walking down the stairs and seeing it, but not going into it. And then it's yeah. like going into it when it's very empty and only going one stop. And then it's like, you know, it's just, yeah. it, it's, um, and what I, and I think it speaks really well to something else that you talked about in your story of just like these sm- small changes rather than yeah. like having to jump off the deep end of like, you know, it, it might seem unrealistic to go from hating your body to loving your body, but can you go yeah. from hating your body to like hating a little bit less and then to yeah. maybe like just acceptance of it for where it is and yeah. what it can do, maybe not loving it yet. And yeah. Um, it's going to be uncomfortable. Like you said, it's like yeah. addressing a fear that you have. And at the yep. same time with exposure therapy, the idea is, okay, you get comfortable at that's one step. So you go a little bit further and you get comfortable at that step. And so then you go a little bit further and yeah, it's slow yeah. going. And like you said, it's like, it's, if you're medically compromised, especially like you can't wait for your body yeah. image to get better before you got to fix the symptoms. And so yeah. that's why there's so much of a incongruency often because it's like, I'm eating everything that I'm supposed to be eating and I'm not purging yeah. and I'm not binging and I'm so uncomfortable. Yeah. And yeah. I just have to sit with being uncomfortable because I can't use these symptoms, but I'm in this body that I don't like and don't feel good in. Yeah. It's just like, it really is that like, so I, I think why they say it's the last thing to go. It's like the last 5% yeah. before the coal becomes the diamond or be, before yeah. it's like, my teacher says it's like a lot of people do the 95% of the work and it's the last 5% that really matter. And it's not that the first yeah. 95% didn't, but without that last 5%, you don't get, you just like sit there in limbo right? yeah. or, or you relapse. It's like you either yeah. stay there and go forward or you stay there and retract because I don't right. know how sustainable it is to just stay there forever. Right. No, I could totally see that. Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah. And I think a big part of the body image, I'll just throw this in there Sure, with the body image too, is like the one thing that maybe someone can do, like even in the beginning is, I love what Carolyn Costin talks about, like um, instead of like focusing on the darkness, bringing in the light, like there might be things you can do at any point to right. start that work of like trying to identify with a deeper part of yourself that mm-hmm. is in your body. Because I think for me, the final piece where it feels like body image really is healed and why it is kind of the final piece it's it's because that you're like connected with a sense of who you are that's more than your body and I think mm-hmm. that takes a long time to develop but maybe there are things in the beginning that yeah there are different exercises especially yeah, in Carolyn's I, books right yeah. and, I, and I think like what you're saying is you know so many people with eating disorders identify with their body right so yeah. it's like once you start finding these other things to identify with then you can start to kind of lessen the identification with your body and start to identify with like, Oh, I'm a painter and I'm a gardener. And, and then eventually maybe it gets even deeper than that. Like I remember for me, it kind of changed from like, I have anorexia to like, I'm a yoga practitioner. Right. And and like now I would say like, I don't even identify necessarily with that, but it was, it was a new identity that was a healthier identity. Yes. Yeah. Sure. You know, I need to, I have anorexia and so I need to not eat and stay under a certain amount of weight. It also reminds me of, I have a friend who actually gave this analogy during one of the yoga classes that she was teaching about how 
people only have she like a certain amount of energy or a certain amount of focus in a day. And so she says to like liken your energy or your focus to like the amount of money that you have in the bank. Mm. And when you've withdrawn all of your money, you don't have any more. Like there's not an yeah. infinite supply of money. You don't have an infinite supply of focus or energy every day, which is why you have to go yeah. to sleep at night, right? You need to replenish. Right. And so if you can start to find things, like if you've got a hundred dollars worth of energy. I'm just going to use it that way. And you're really in the thick of your eating disorder. So all a yeah. hundred of those dollars are spent on your eating disorder. Yeah. You don't have anything else. But when you can start to find other things that fill you up or fill your heart up. So say you do get into painting and you get a cat because I love cats, right? And so yeah. now 10 of my dollars is spent on painting and 20 of my dollars is spent on my cats. So now I only have $70 left to spend on the eating stuff and the body stuff. And so yeah. as you start to be able to focus your energy and your intention on other things, naturally you just don't have enough attention to give to that other stuff anymore. And that's another yeah. way that you can start to just decrease. But either way- yeah. Like Carolyn Costin says, it's really about like, where do you fill up your heart and focus your yeah. attention on these positive things and these light things in your life rather than to have to keep just focusing on, I hate my body, I hate my body. Yeah. You know, people are saying my body's bigger. Someone mentioned that I looked healthy. Someone's mentioning that I gained weight. And like, it's just, it's a, and it's kind of going to be, it has to be like a conscious shift or a conscious choice at some point. It's like, I'm going to focus on the light instead of the dark today. And maybe that's only yeah. for 10% of the day, right? Yeah. But it's like starting to make that conscious shift that you make small amounts of it and slowly but surely it can start to really change the balance. Yeah, no, totally. And I think it's so hard in our culture when, yeah, we're taught or like we're, we see from so much of like media and mainstream how tied up people let their senses of themselves get tied up with their satisfaction with their body. Mm -hmm. And for me, I know with like with clients or in my own recovery, the goal is to, I guess, be at a healthier place than the rest of society in a lot of ways, because yeah. to recover from an eating disorder, you've got to be okay with your body not looking like a magazine cover and maybe like how all of your other friends are trying to get their bodies to look because there's just, right. it's just so incongruent. So it's yeah. totally feel, I mean, just for myself being recovered, like I totally feel like I am healthier in that aspect than most yeah. people, even if they have yeah. no eating disorders because I yeah. had to get there. You had to, exactly. you know, like in terms of like exposure therapy, it's like you, I had to get to this place of like, I feel so much more comfortable even on the days that like I don't, I'm having a bad body image. Day. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I had to be able to get to this place of being so much more comfortable with myself and how I look and how I feel and what I'm eating than most people ever get to because they didn't have to do the work on it that we had totally. to do because we were in recovery. No, for sure. I think that's so true. Cause yeah, I think that's a really good point is that we are going to still like being in this culture. I think it be such a tiny minority of people who might never have a body image, bad body image day. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think it's going to still be so normal. I still have them. Um, they're just much more fleeting and short lived and right. you just, they just don't define so much of who you are, but yeah, it's tricky for people who haven't had to go through eating disorder recovery. A bad body image day might signify the start of a new diet and right. that might be how they deal with it. And, right. but for them, it, it might not turn into an eating disorder. So yeah. yeah. And I think that's a good segue into um, something else that we were going to talk about on like 
when you have people in your life or you have friends who do diet and do do detoxes and do do cleanses, um, because you mentioned um, in your story that like you were not really using symptoms anymore and then a group of your friends decided to go on a diet or a detox or whatever because summer was coming. Right, Um, yeah. Just reminds me of myself, but also just some of the clients that I have who, you know, have friends that live that life, right? We're going to the beach, like we got to go on a diet so that we're beach body ready and the summer's coming. And, and I guess from the standpoint, both as someone who's recovered, but also who's someone who's a dietitian, like what advice might you have for someone who's in recovery from an eating disorder who has friends like that in their life? Like, what would you tell them how to navigate that? Right. Well, I should preface that with that. I'm not currently a dietitian. I gave up my okay. registration. So you, so. you were, or you I was a dietitian. that. You went to school with that. You mm-hmm. had clients. Um, I worked but, in it for a while. Yeah. yeah but it's a, it's a perspective that not everybody else is going to have. So totally. I guess, you know, from that perspective, and then also from the perspective of someone who has been there and now yeah. is where you are, just, and again, it's just your advice. It might not resonate with anybody, but it might resonate with some. Like what yeah. advice might you have? Yeah. So no, it, it did come up in my work as a dietitian and, and what I learned to tell myself after that relapse that started from, um, from thinking I could join my friends on that diet after two years of very tenuous um, symptom remission, not recovery. Um, the, what I like the analogy I'll use is um, like with, I use the analogy with alcoholism and because um, I just think it, it, there are a lot of similarities that people can understand, but how if someone had a very extreme um, relationship with alcohol in the past um, and so they're in recovery now and it means for them being abstinent yeah, it, it, it might be hard if they still have friends who talk about getting really drunk on the weekends and who can easily, you know, have a few drinks with a meal. Um, it's similar with someone with a history of an eating disorder where their friends may be able to go on diets like that. Um, and just for them, they, for, I just explained it to clients and to myself that it's just different for me. Um, I just gave myself permission that I didn't need to do that for the summer. Um, My relationship with food and dieting is just very different now. And what other people are able to do, maybe in a kind, not healthy way, but maybe in a way that, you know, isn't going to be too problematic for them, but maybe in a way that is like, yeah, exactly. You don't know what people are really going through, but just knowing that for you, just letting yourself know that your relationship with food is different now. And you don't, yeah, a diet for you could very well spiral into a relapse. And, and also just, yeah, is that, are you ready? Uh, is that the direction you want to go in with your recovery work? I guess that's another part of it. But, um, but yeah, I use the analogy of an uh, someone who's in recovery from alcoholism and just how different that relationship is and how for them they aren't going to be able to go out and just have a few drinks with some friends just like someone within who's in recovery from eating disorder can't just go on a cleanse or go on a diet for summer or 
Yeah. Yeah, and, And I think like for some people that might be a hard pill to swallow, but it's also just like the reality yeah. of the situation. Like I remember I, um, sometimes I assist my, my yoga teacher, um, when she does a program called, uh, she calls it quarter life calling and it's for people mm. in their twenties. And the last day of the program, she like lists things that she does that just like works for her. And she's mm-hmm. like, not all of these things are going to work for all of you, but here are some things that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so some of the things that she lists, are food related. And I remember right, there, right. you know, being someone in the group that later on had mentioned to me that that was triggering for her. Cause like, right. why, why could my teacher not eat like this or like right. not eat that? But she had to. And my answer was just like, because you're in recovery. Yeah. You know, and sometimes yeah. that's just, it's like I said, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's the hard truth, but it's just right now that's not going to work for you. And it doesn't mean that forever and ever and ever and ever it won't, but like right now it's just not going to work for you. And that's just someone who's newly sober won't go out drinking. I imagine with their friends and it doesn't mean that's forever. So again, like I, when I was newly in recovery, the yoga studio that I went on, went to, went on a group cleanse. I wanted to do it. So I tried right right away. I was like, that is an awful idea. So I stopped you know, years later, my friend wanted to go on a cleanse for her wedding. And like, I don't necessarily like agree with that whole thing, but the bridesmaids were doing it. And so I did it and I was totally fine because it, I was far enough along. Like I was recovered at that point. It did not bother me at all, but I couldn't do that for probably from the, I mean, not that I would have done it at 12, but like if I left rehab for the last time at 21, like I probably could not have done that until the age of 28. Yeah. Like, I just wasn't ready. And and that was just the way that it was. And so I didn't do it. And yeah. Um, and I, and I think like, like I've got friends that are in recovery from alcohol and they've been in recovery long enough that, you know, they can go to a Super Bowl party where there's a lot of alcohol and they're okay. Right. Um, and then I have other friends that like, can't and and that's okay right it's just you've got to really I think part of it's really having to get super honest and and real with yourself of like where am I in my recovery and 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 what is actually good for me like authentic right soulful me not like eating disorder self me that like suddenly feel like whose ears perk up really quickly and it's like oh I can grab onto that yeah exactly because I was gonna say like when you're like, when you're really far along and like, you might ideally, and this, yeah, like reading about the health at every size, like that approach can be really helpful for people because just kind of trying to unbrainwash ourselves from the whole diet culture and this need to lose weight to, to think we look beautiful and to think that's what we need to do to be healthy and attractive. So I think also, yeah, reading about health at every size can be Mm-hmm. Good for starting. And, and you also mentioned the book um, Intuitive in, in your story. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that could be another helpful part of it too, to just, because ideally you'll get to a point where even if you're recovered enough to go on a diet, you just, why would you do? Right. You and, and like I said, when I went on that cleanse, like I was just like, whatever. It was just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're doing it. But like, I literally, I'm not even joking you. I broke the cleanse with like a pepperoni and provolone sub. Yeah. I was like, I am done with this. Like, <laughs> where is my lunch? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it just like, it was just, the, that's just what was happening. But I was at a point yeah. in my life where I knew that wasn't going to make me spiral. I was just yeah. like, okay, I can do this. It's a two day thing, not a problem. But I could yeah. not have done that for most of my recovery. 
totally. And I tried once and I was like, yep, nope, this isn't going to work. And I called the yoga studio and I was like, please take me out of this cleanse. It's not going to work. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. The new behaviors or the new, yeah, the recovery has to be Mm -hmm. strong enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's like the also kind of the phobia thing, right? It's like trying to totally skip exposure and go from like zero to a hundred. It's like, you got to give yourself a chance. Yeah, for sure. Up towards ever even being able to consider doing that, you know? Yeah. And we live in a world where like, I imagine if I ever get married, like there won't be any cleanses because I don't care. Yeah, you know? no, <laughs> I know like, that's exactly. Yeah, that's a point. Ideally, people get to where right. Mm-hmm. It's just like you feel yeah. so good about yourself, and that doesn't actually matter what size you are because you feel beautiful on the inside. You feel strong on the inside. You feel great on the inside. That whatever you look like on the outside is just a reflection of that. Like yeah, exactly. one of my clients likes to use the word glowing. Like she feels like when she's mm. fully recovered, she'll glow. Oh, and I love that word out thing that it doesn't actually matter what she looks like on the outside because she'll just be glowing. I love that. No, you know? totally. No, I think that is definitely the thing to strive for. And I know, yeah, like what used to trigger me, like seeing people signing up for marathon trainings or gym programs or new clean eating things what it used to trigger me and now it's not like I feel bad for them I just feel really grateful that I don't yeah need to do those things anymore to feel okay totally yeah, I, I had an experience and it's choice if you want to right. sign up for it's a choice right. yeah I had an experience recently when I I was taking a yoga class it was after the yoga class and I was like took a shower and I was brushing my hair and I heard some of the other students talking about this diet that they were going on and yeah. like in my head, I was actually kind of laughing, not at them, but just like, I'm so happy. I don't care about this. Like, not only do I not want to be part of the conversation, it's not triggering me though. And that was more what I was just like, I fine, like you do you, but that is not my choice is not to do that too. Yeah, no, I know. I, for me, I feel like there are so many gifts to recover, like to having the eating disorder and what the recovery process has forced me to like, develop for myself but um I think that is one of the things that can be a real blessing for it is that you're forced to get to this place where you kind of yeah you're not affected by putting all your attention on your body and what you eat anymore so that's mm-hmm. I think that can be such a blessing because I think often you do end up in a place that's yeah much more kind of yeah not not caught up in what so many people can get caught up in right mm-hmm so why don't we shift gears just a little bit to like what's going on in your life right now? So at one point you were, um, right. were a, res- a registered dietitian. Yeah. Um, and now you are? Now I'm – pardon? Now what do you do? Oh, I'm just starting out in my practice as an eating disorder recovery coach. So yeah, soon after I was in a really good place with my recovery and um, – 2011, after I got back from a while after I got back from India and figuring out what I wanted to do, I decided against med school and against a lot of other things. It took me a while to figure out, but I decided that I would become a dietitian. And I think that is very common for people with eating disorder histories to go into um, 
being a dietitian or therapist, but I didn't know if I wanted to work with eating disorders, but it just, it fit with my degree well. Um, and I did want to help people heal their relationships with food, not necessarily just with eating disorders, but like intuitive eating, health at every size, helping people stop dieting. Um, it all really interested me. So I kind of went in with an open mind, um, not knowing what I wanted to do with it. I thought maybe I'd tack on a you know, go back to school, get a master's in counseling. Um, I, di I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it just, I'd been out of my last degree for a while and this one wouldn't be quite so long as some of the other grad degrees. So yeah, I became a dietitian and did that for a few years. And um, part of that time for, yeah, part of that time I did work with eating disorders and I really loved it. And, uh, but yeah, I think I'd gone in with such an open mind. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And for some reason, it just didn't, the focus, well, maybe it was partly the position I was in, but I just didn't have a lot of time with clients. Um, it felt very focused on just kind of management of their meal plans, how much they were eating. I didn't get a chance to both the scope of being a, a dietitian and, um, the position I was in didn't really allow me to delve deeper with people and, I just didn't really know. I couldn't see myself doing it, at least not that position for that much longer. And so um, I ended up, so that was about a year and a half ago, I ended up giving my notice and deciding I needed to step away from it to figure out what I wanted to do next. I really had no idea. Um, and so I went traveling um, for, it ended up being 14 months. It was kind of an open-ended um, trip and I went with my boyfriend and it was really amazing um and it was during that time that I found Carolyn's course and I just got so excited when I found it because I'd always considered going back to school and becoming a therapist possibly or yeah I didn't know what I wanted to do but I was always drawn I really realized I did love giving back to the eating disorder community sharing what I'd been through in a way that might be able to help others um, I just found I really resonated with the eating disorder clients I'd had as a dietitian, um, and I wanted to do that work in some way. I just didn't know if dietetics was it. Um, so yeah, so I did. I started Carolyn's course while I was traveling, and I I finished it while I was still traveling. And now I'm back in Victoria, BC, and I'm starting up my private practice as, yeah, as an eating disorder recovery coach. And I'm undecided if I'm going to go back to the dietetics field. Um, but for now, I just, I really want to focus on the coaching work. And I just think it's a really neat thing that is being kind of added to the um, mainstream approach to eating disorder treatment. I think with thanks to Carolyn Costin, um, and just this, the coach training she's offering. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. So yeah, that's where I'm at. It's kind of a recent transition. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how, um, like, how would you describe what an eating disorder coach is or does? Yeah, so I know for so many people, and definitely for me, um, it's just, it's that, it's that phobic thing. So the exposure and response prevention, that can be so hard, and you can have all the insight in the world. And all the tools that you've gotten from, you know, sessions with amazing treatment teams, but sometimes just that extra bit of support in the moment, like actually eating the meal that you told your dietitian you were going to eat, um, having someone to eat it with you, 
someone you can text between sessions um, can make such a difference um, if you're not going to a treatment center because I think that's often you know why some higher level of care is needed just for the extra support but I think a coach while someone is still appropriate for outpatient care um, can be so wonderful for filling those gaps not everyone not all dietitians and therapists have time to eat meals with clients or time for clients to reach out to them like in between sessions so the coach really does the the practical side of the recovery like being with clients in the moment um eating with them even being on the phone with them as they're grocery shopping uh being on video with them as they prepare a meal because i can do virtual work too or any coach most coaches do virtual work as well um and also you know coping skills and goal setting but the difference with coaching versus therapy is i really keep the focus um in the moment or looking forward um, so kind of like the here and now mm -hmm. um, I don't have the training to delve into like you know why someone might have an eating disorder or right. you know, past traumas or any deeper like depression anxiety any deeper psychological issues um, that's where yeah often or ideally people would have a treatment team that I'm just in addition to and then just yeah helping them with it in the moment um, yeah, parts of recovery that can be so hard and then liaising closely with the therapist and the dietitian. So I feel mm -hmm. like I'm helping them and like implementing what they're working on. Right. With the client. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, one of my favorite parts about being a coach is like the texting in between. Yeah. You know, yes. When, when yes. I have a client that's like, I want to purge or I want to binge or I don't want to eat lunch or, or whatever it is, like when they really, when they're really having an urge to use their symptoms um, and the healthy self gets a little bit of space to actually reach out. It's yeah. One of my favorite things. And it's when I really feel like when you really take the word coach, like sometimes I picture myself as like, I do this in my yoga classes too sometimes. Like you're in the middle of a really hard sports game, whatever sport it is. And yeah. like, time out, like come here, let me give you a pep talk. What is yeah. going on? Like, yeah. what do you need? Get back out there. Like, it's just, and then sometimes you have a losing game and you use your symptom and then it's okay. It's like, all right. Yeah. Let's go back out there. We can do this. And so sometimes, yeah. like, really, I take the word coach to heart like that. Um, but yeah, it's a really new and exciting field. And um, yeah. I'm excited to um, know other eating disorder coaches because I think yeah. one thing that I say a lot to my clients is, like, I so believe in coaching, but I also think that the coach-client relationship is so important. Yeah. And, like, I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And if that's the truth, then that's totally fine. But it doesn't mean coaching's not going to work for you. And so, you know, what yeah. I love about having a network of eating disorder recovery coaches is like find the coach that resonates with you. Like if it's not me, maybe it's you, Sarah. If it's not you, Sarah, maybe it's me, maybe it's totally. Um, but it's just, it's a field that is new and that yeah. other addictions have been using a lot more often. And, yeah. um, and I think it really can, especially when therapists and dietitians and psychiatrists do use the coach as just like another part of the treatment team. Yeah. Um, it's just like, okay, like this is the plan. Now the coach is going to go out and let's do this. Like, let's make this happen. Go buy, totally. go to the grocery store, get what you need, like get on Skype, get on zoom and have the meal that you need or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it is a field that I think is amazing. And so I'm really excited to know you and to, know that it's a growing field and that there's other, you know, people that have really done their own personal work to get them to this point of being yeah. able to 
like spread and share it so that, like you said, in the very beginning of your stories, like the more people that are out and open about this, the more stories and people there are to resonate with. Yeah. So that hopefully the, the web of those in recovery and are recovered and having the conversations just kind of grows and grows and grows because it's, it's still a relatively new conversation to have. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think even, even the concept of being able to be recovered is new to have. I know as a dietitian, I, so many parents were so scared that their kid was never going to get over it. Like it was something they were going to be dealing with their whole life. And I think, and I would self-disclose at those times that I was recovered and it gave them so much hope. Like it was so neat for the parents just knowing that that was a possibility. So I think that's another thing that can be really like powerful for, yeah, people don't always, it's hard to, it's hard to believe it when you're in the thick of it sometimes that, yeah, I remember always thinking I'm 100%. It's like such a leap of faith. It's like all of these people are telling me to do these things and that's going to get me to this place. But like, I don't know that. And so it's literally just having to be like, okay, like, let's see. Um, Totally. Yeah. No, it was so helpful for me knowing that it was really, really hard for people, like equally hard as I was experiencing and it got easier and they got over it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Whenever my clients are having a hard time, like one of the things I tell them is like every person that's recovered has had a hard time. Like they've been here. Yeah. They've been to this point of like not using symptoms, but hating their bodies and they've gotten past that. Everybody, they've they've had that, they've had that spot. You know, yeah. and, and, and so there's so much possibility of being able to move beyond it. And, and honestly, oh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely going to be easier for some people than others. You know, yeah. there's definitely yeah. this like, there's just discrepancies in like totally. your natural body size and yeah. your socioeconomic standards and where you li- and live and access to treatment. Like there will totally. be people that it's easier than others, but yeah. the, the, it's still everybody that's gotten to where they are has been struggle has struggled and it's it's possible to do and I think I don't know if it's Carolyn Costin or I have a client or I had a client who went through Montenito and I don't know Mm. I guess it was Carolyn that says this just that like the people the only people that don't succeed are the ones that stop trying yeah no and I'm yeah Montenito would have all of Carolyn's philosophies because that was the one she ran so yeah no but that was in the eight keys books and I think yeah I'm I'm of course, like it's so there are no controlled models to be able to prove you can't take to like the same person and put them on, you know, you can't compare someone to themselves. But I really do think that's true from like my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, the more yeah. people, like you said, again, in the beginning, like the more people that come out and share their stories, again, the more there is to resonate with. So like for you, like you said, it was like 14 years of like, successes and relapses and successes and relapses and there wasn't yeah. a single aha moment and like no. you know there's just the more people that share from the more different backgrounds and the more different experiences no no single journey is going to look the exact same but there will be Definitely not. and ways of resonating with different journeys just to hopefully help along the way um yeah totally totally so. yeah no i think that's so true like there yeah just seeing any little bit like I think for me there were often so many like arguments for why I would have of like why it might be possible for someone else and not me and then being able to read someone else's story where they also felt that same way and Mm -hmm. still recovered I feel like every person's eating disorder has told them that at some point yeah exactly they were able to do it but I can't and this is why and it's just 
it's just, that's just another eating disorder thought, you know, that's where it's like, can you create some space from that thought and let the healthy self come in? And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, you can do it too. So, um, before we get going, is there any last things that you'd like to say or little bits of wisdom or inspiration you'd like to give before we, before we say goodbye? Um, I guess I, I just hope that, yeah, just for everyone to recognize that, you know, this is my journey and I hope, you know, little bits of it resonated and yeah, that everyone's journey is so different. Um, and that's a beautiful thing because you'll learn your own lessons from going through it and you'll develop, you know, new strengths and that you needed to through the recovery process. So I think just really um, validating that if your journey is completely different, it's just, yeah, it's beautiful and yeah, who knows? Yeah, what you'll be grateful for from the journey when you look back on it. Um, yeah, no, I think it's such an individual thing for everyone. So no, no, no overall nuggets of wisdom, but just to trust your own journey and know that even if it is, and it will be different from everyone else's that you hear about, that, yeah, it's, you can totally get through it and come out very, like way stronger on the other side. Thank you so much for listening today. The homework for today is to journal about your relationship with spirituality. If you consider yourself religious, what is the difference between religion and spirituality for you? How is your religion a bridge to spirituality? And how can having that in your life help you with your recovery? If you're not religious, what does spirituality mean to you? What do you feel connected to? How can this help you in your recovery? For more support, check out my website, alwaysabeing.com. And while you're there, take my free eating disorder recovery archetype quiz or sign up for my Accept Recovery 8-day e-course. A reminder, you get the first two days of that course for free. And if you decide to continue, it's pay what you can afford for the rest. As always, I want to hear from you. Email me at kristin at alwaysabeing.com. If you are well into your recovery or if you are recovered, be interviewed on the podcast. Just a reminder that if this episode resonated with you or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment or sharing it with other people who might also find it helpful.